Hi folks and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Joined today by a delightful guy named Mark Green, who's the author of Activators and you'll get from the conversation today. He's done his work, he's done his time in terms of leadership, he's been a coach, he's been a top coach, he's moved into writing to coaching at a senior level. Um, there's a number of different parallels in terms of our uh, careers and what's happened. But the piece for me is when I read Activators, the simplicity of his thinking and how it applies to being a leader. And it's focused on CEOs, but it applies to every leader in that context. And I, I've worked on a couple of the areas that he talks about, and they are powerful. So love you to listen today to, to Mark Green. You'll get a sense for him. He's accessible on a number of different channels that he gives at the end here to start to, to, to look at the work. And I'm also delighted that we'll start to do more collaboration between the two of us in terms of sharing messages um, and our work. So it's great. So enjoy, Mark, and I'll look forward to hearing your feedback. Let's go go back. Since we talked, what's been happening? What's, apart from enjoying the sunsets, what's been happening with you? You know, I was thinking about this, and it's probably been a good three months, at least since we spoke, mm. because as popular and famous and noted as you are, you were so scheduled out that this time was at least three months away from from when we met. And that made you more valuable to me, Colin. <laughs> That's one of the myths. You know, we're talking about debunking myths. That's one of the myths. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Scarcity. so one, one of my favorite business authors, Robert Cialdini, mm. who writes about persuasion. Yeah. The scarcity effect is real. Yeah. And it is a, it is an element of persuasion. So you know, I'd love to meet with you, but you know, I'm six months out in my schedule and all of a sudden my value goes up. So in the three months since we've met, life has gone on. My wife and I are at a point in our lives now where I'm beginning to throttle back on the business side a little bit, which is quite a mental adjustment to make. And that involves over time having my coaching client load slowly drift downward while continuing to do more writing and speaking, hmm. because there's a very different, as you know, very different time commitment profile there yeah. than the other. And I don't see a place where I actually let go of the coaching 100%. I want to keep in that for sure. I, I just have such passion for the work. But I'm continuing to do more on, on the other side, building relationships, for example, with Simon Sinek's team and his online learning platform, Optimism Online. I'm also, as you know, doing a lot of work with the growth faculty down in Australia. Karen Beattie and her team put on a fantastic series of events and really attract some A-list speakers down there. And then what the time has allowed us to do is uh, travel more. So about a year ago, we bought a motor coach, oh, lovely. which I would encourage you to think about like a rock star bus, like a giant <laughs> bus that is uh, outfitted quite a bit like the Ritz-Carlton, if I must be honest. Nice. And uh, yeah, because that's my version of camping. You know, I, I mean, really, <laughs> my, my wife's interesting. Carrie's interesting. She, she would sleep in a tent under the stars, pouring rain. Like she doesn't care. That's how she's wired. She's an ecologist by training and spent all of her mm -hmm. formative years outside. And that's that's her thing. Me, I come a little bit more challenged into nature. She's been working on me all these years and I'm moving slowly, but I'd rather tool around in the Rockstar bus and see the country that way. And so we've been doing that. And our goal this year was to travel on a once per month rhythm mm -hmm. through the entirety of the year, not all in the, in the coach. And we've been doing that. 
and it's been fabulous. Cool. Any particular destinations? So the way at the beginning of the year, we were in Florida for three weeks, which was quite astounding for us because unlike in Europe, you know, the concept mm. of a three-week holiday here in mm. the United States is anathema. Oh. It doesn't exist, yeah. right? And we both looked at each other and thought, well, this is the first time we've ever taken this much time ever. Yeah. And it was fabulous. So that worked out great. We've been all over the place, mostly east of the Mississippi this year, though. And um, our next trip coming up in about two more weeks, two or three weeks, we're going to Acadia National Park up in mm. Maine, which is near where you want to hang out on the Cape, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we're very, Amazing. very excited about that. Mm. But everything with the family is good, mm. knock on wood. We each had a bit of a bout of co- with COVID, of course, and that was in May, I think. So, and that was after you and I spoke. Yeah. But both cases mild and nothing lasting, and, and so we were okay with that. But thank you for asking. Glad to hear, glad to hear. Good. So apart from thinking of Meet the Fuckers and the, you know, the big mobile home and thinking of you as Robert De Niro, which actually is a good comparison on that. So that's a, an interesting. Have you seen the movie? Yes, I've seen the movie. Uh, unlike De Niro, though, I've been told I have a face for radio. Ah. <laughs> Yeah, I've been told the same as well. Yes, but I, I think our voices they are our strength. So, Mark, come on, we, we're benefiting from very high quality microphones, Colin. Let's be brutally Thanks. honest with ourselves and editing. So, <laughs> and and therefore, just let's take a step back and get you to introduce yourself to the the people listening because it's for me, it's been a real pleasure meeting you and hearing your story, and and it's it's an inspiring story for me to listen to, and I'd love for you to share it for the the listeners to hear what you've done. Yeah, absolutely. So I was born about an hour north of New York City in Chappaqua, New York, northern Westchester County. There, I'm the middle of three boys, mm-hmm. so I I always play the middle child card. I always played it growing up and seemed to work out pretty well. And my mother was a school teacher. Mm-hmm. She's still with us, thankfully, now 90 years old. And my father was a podiatrist, a foot doctor. And he had his own practice back in the day. Um, and sadly, we lost him to a heart attack unexpectedly in the year 2000. It's still amazing to, to think that it's been 22 years wow. since we lost him. And it's interesting because I, th- I think about him a lot from the perspective that personally, most of my accomplishment and success has occurred in the time since he left us. Mm. And, you know, my mother and I have conversations periodically and she would say, man, could you imagine what your father would think of you today? You know, or if he saw you doing these things or just the impact of, of what I'm doing. And, and so I, I have great appreciation and gratitude for how I was raised. You know, my, my mother had all of the natural curiosity of a great educator. And of course, that's the house we grew up in. And so she used to do crazy things for us, like take us to construction sites (laughs) on the day that they had a helicopter coming to lift the giant HVAC unit off the truck and hoist it 10 or 12 stories up and plop it on the top of the building. Amazing. Yeah, it was always interesting stuff like that that we grew up with. So I, I have her to thank for my sense of curiosity and also my unwillingness to accept what's not possible. <laughs> I guess I would, I would say that because she always found a way. And my father was mm. like that too. He was very mechanically inclined, used to fix our cars and had a f- way to figure out everything. And he was a tinkerer, a great tinkerer in the kitchen, by the way. He cooked amazingly. Mm. And so I got, I got a lot of that from him. Mm. I left home after graduating high school 
and went to college in St. Louis, Missouri, went to Washington University in St. Louis. And it was a great change of pace for me because I really came to appreciate in the United States here, what I would consider the Midwestern vibe, Mm -hmm. which is having grown up in the Northeast, just slower pace and kinder, gentler, people more willing to give you the time of day, like all of these things. Mm -hmm. And I I really enjoyed that. And in fact, in my Mm -hmm. four years there, managed to lose my New York accent. And so it's interesting because when people meet me, they can't tell where I'm from based on how I speak. So it's sort of interesting that that happened um, as well. And I guess that was my immersion there. So I graduated with a degree in psychology and business and uh, intended to put both uh, to work in the, in the business world. Was fortunate to get hired right off campus and started working for a technology company that outsourced technology in the banking industry. And that was the first 10 years of my career, which culminated in being laid off. Wow. Yeah. And except, so technically it was a layoff, but I knew I was in a role at the time where I was really over my head and I was failing. And so I was mm. chosen to be laid off because I was not the guy. And so, you know, I had this like dichotomy in my head at the time. And it was a big blow because at that point, you know, I'd pretty much been able to achieve and accomplish everything I wanted to accomplish in my life. Mm. And so psychologically, that was very, very hard. But I dug deep. And at the time, I remember telling my boss in the conversation, I said, you know, don't take this the wrong way. But in some respects, I feel like you're handing me a bouquet of flowers Hmm. and wishing me all the best for for like what's going to be next in my life. And that's kind of how I viewed it. And what that did is it put me in a position to begin the journey in small business. Hmm. And I got a job with a marketing agency that was a very small company that had managed to attract some really amazing and talented people. But the reality of small business set in and I realized that the the business owner, my boss was crazy. Is that the reality of small business? Well, yeah, she she had this amazing ability to attract these incredibly smart and accomplished people and then have them all leave in, in, you know, 12 to 18 months, you know, and and that was it. And so I did a couple of stints in a few small businesses that way. And really broadened my my base in terms of, you know, my ability to sell, my ability to manage relationships, all of those things, manage, lead, all that. And it was 2003 when I thought to myself, you know, I, I want to go do my own thing now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's my turn. And I, I just couldn't at that point see myself continuing to work for anyone else. Mm-hmm. And so I created Performance Dynamics Group, which is my business. And we launched as a, a leadership development training company. That was the beginning. And in family at that point, no, or married, or what was this? Yeah, I was married with kids at that point yeah. in in two thousand three for for sure. Big big change. Now, fortunately, my wife uh, at the time, my first wife Stephanie, also worked, and so mm. here in the United States, we always have to worry about our our health care, right? Because yeah. we haven't figured that out yet. Apparently, like <laughs> the rest of the world, so that definitely took some pressure off to give me the runway and for us also to not have to worry about our benefits. And, you know, that began the journey, Mm -hmm. the journey that caused me to have to figure out who I am, to be able to finally see myself for what I was at the time, which isn't who I am today. It ultimately led to doing some things to find more happiness for myself Mm -hmm. and have an effect of that happiness to be 
the business success that I wanted, right? Mm-hmm. The success that yep. I wanted. And there was a moment five years ago mm-hmm. where everything in my life professionally came full circle back to mm-hmm. the day that I was laid off of my first job. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd love to tell you that story and share that story, but I'll hold off on it until we're, we're at a place where you want me to share that. But it was one of those moments that was just meant to be. Mm. There's a couple of things I want to dig into because I'm, I'm resonating with the story. And one is the bouquet of flowers given as a gift because I had it with Procter & Gamble. I went for a role, didn't get it. And there was something called strengthening global effectiveness, which happened to me. In other words, it, we were cutting jobs and I chose to go. I chose to deal with it differently and not in a great way. Yeah, but I went and it forced me. And I'm interested in thinking, you know, the mindset that you had at that time about the bouquet of flowers versus mine, which was I went off and played for a year, did an MBA, and I found myself in there. But it, I got the kick up the backside that caused me to become myself. I'm interested in the bouquet of flowers and the thinking because that's obviously has shaped you as well now in terms of what you're, you're doing. So it's interesting. At the time, I wasn't fully aligned with my words at the time. Mm. Uh, that is what I said. And that is what I what I desperately wanted to believe. And I had always fancied myself an optimist. And I and I was and I was. But I was an optimist often in denial of reality. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in the early years of my practice, when my colleagues would ask me, hey, how's it going? Everything was always great. Mm. Colin, everything was always great. Yeah. Right. But it wasn't. The problem is it wasn't, you know, and I couldn't admit it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I I had this belief in me that if I did, it would show my weakness and that's not who I am. And so I can't be that. And so I did set out to make that layoff into a defining moment for myself. No question about it. I was married. I was a young father at the time. You know, we had a home. I mean, we had obligations. Yes, my, my wife at the time worked, but I wasn't going to be able to go off and not do anything for a while. It was not in the cards, you know. Mm. So that that kind of set up the the journey, mm. you know, that set up the journey. And the, the layoff in and of itself had sort of set me up to sour on the big company world, which is what caused me mm-hmm. to look to the smaller businesses. And and then you realize, you know, you've, you've got they have hair on them too, right? And you've got to learn your lessons there. I think there's there's something in there, and it goes back to you know your book activators, which I love. You know, for me, it was so clear for me as I went through every one of them that it was was important. But it there's a piece in here that's about the resilience of the individual and doing your own, listening to your own voices, changing your own voices in your head, because there's always this, this third judge, as we talk about and positive intelligence, which is, it's the one that when I get this, I'll be happy. When I do this, I'll be happy, which is actually, it's about the journey as you talk in your final chapter in there. And that's quite a big revelation as an individual, isn't it? Yeah, it it sure is. In fact, I just published an article in my newsletter touching on this topic. It's uh, mental models for leaders to help them 10x their performance. And there's four that I unpack. And without getting into the specifics of it, it's thematically aligned with what you're suggesting here. And And I learned that early on in my own entrepreneurial journey, that I needed to be very careful about what I was allowing to program me or influence me. 
And one of the smartest things I did a very long time ago is I stopped watching the news. Hmm. Interesting. I also stopped watching media where bad things happened to good people. Hmm. And, and to this day, like my wife knows very clearly, I will not watch a movie or a show where bad things happen to good people. And I mean, in like a gratuitous way. And so I started very early on being aware of what I was putting inside, because I, I believe, you know, you don't see it this way. But above your brain, there are two spigots. Mm -hmm. There's a positive input spigot and a negative input spigot. Mm. And if you're not conscious about the setting of those two spigots mm -hmm. and you just put yourself out in the world, mm -hmm. I mean, you tell me yep. what's on the news, more plus or minus, 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 what do people tend to talk about at coffee shops and barbecues and at the local bar, plus or minus, minus. Yep. Okay. All right. Absolutely. And so if you're not controlling that, mm -hmm. you're in a situation where the, the plus is almost shut off mm -hmm. and the minus is wide open. Yep. And the research backs this up mm -hmm. that that has a profound effect mm -hmm. on the choices you make yep. and how you think and on your happiness and all of these other things. Yeah. And so I made the choice very early on. And I think that my optimism, my drive for optimism, even though it wasn't authentic mm. inside of me from early on, it helped me make some of these choices and kind of begin that part of my journey, you know, where eventually, of course, I learned to be honest with mm. myself and with others and to be more transparent. And that was a, a part of my journey to happiness, actually. But those things came together a little bit later. Yeah, it's the, uh, I used to love Carl Jung's research work into the Native American Indians where, you know, wisdom and the growth, but you had to, to live in the eyes of other people and the other places to, to understand it. But it was about the growth and the wisdom. And I always feel that is that, you know, our wisdom comes to us a lot of the times later than we should, unless we have traumatic events in our life, wisdom comes later. If only I knew this when I was younger, it would be great. But this, the journey, isn't it? That's what we go through. Yeah. Oh, it's it's totally the journey. I am so elated to be where I am, mm. doing the things I'm doing, having done the things I did, yep. and continuing to look forward and evolve and you know live a life by design, which really is what we're doing. I don't think about it in, in any woulda, coulda, shoulda yeah. way. We're just here. We're in the present yep. and we're building a future that's in a certain direction that may mm. or may not happen over time. And I love the bit in your work as well in habits because I'm a big believer. But even just a simple thing that I've added to my life, which I never thought I would do, which is a gratitude journal. Mm. <laughs> and it's amazing just simply three things a day you're grateful for, whether it's the most basic thing like the cup of coffee whatever it is but it's it's actually i missed it for about a week when i was on vacation i went back to it but it was a lovely way of reflecting on the the week that i'd had and going back to it. but it imprints the brain it drives the yeah i'm not sure i told you this when we originally met but you know every single client meeting mm. that i facilitate begins with a round of appreciation mm, love it yeah. it's in my agenda every mm. single one and it is remarkable mm how that sets the tone. It also accomplishes a lot of things to help build that team, as you might imagine. Yeah. You know, it's really, really critical. I, I want to come back to the comment about habit, because when we say a habit, mm. 
most of us tend to think of the physical things, mm -hmm. okay? Like keeping a gratitude journal, yep. like how I take my coffee in the mm -hmm. morning or wh whatever it is. And I think for us, though, the most profound realization for a leader is the idea that most of our of the habits that you have that will either help you or get in the way are habits of thinking, mm, yep. not physical habits. Yes. And you have to realize that the habit cycle operates identically for physical habits as it does for habits of thought. That is, there's a stimulus, mm -hmm. there's a response, yeah. and there's a reward. Mm. And we think that way. And so, for example, as a leader, when there's like a job candidate in front of us that we're interviewing, and they say something that reminds us of somebody who said something just like that 10 years ago, mm. we may have the, the habit of thinking, oh, here we go again. I've seen the movie before. Therefore, conversation's over, you know, we, we, I don't want to hire this person yeah. and actually remove someone who could potentially be a really interesting addition to the team just based on that stimulus response setting. Yeah. And all of this occurs unconsciously, of course, like we're not aware of it at the time, yep. but there is a profound effect. And it's one of the reasons why I was so fascinated by the work that led to activators is exploring that whole realm of how we think and how we're triggered. And it's invisible to us. I, you know, and, and habits are one of the three hidden growth killers that we expose in the, in the book. Interesting. I want to go back to your story. Actually, let me go back to the story before we actually forget it. Cause you said, is this a good time for the story or should we? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Let's do that. And then we'll dig into habits after. Yeah. So I was laid off in 1990. Eight, maybe, or 1999. And at the time, I was managing a relationship for the company that I was working for mm -hmm. with a bank called Bank Liumi in New York City. Mm -hmm. And so at the time, I was managing their our outsourced technology relationship with Bank Liumi. That, that was what I was doing. And that was the job that I was laid off from. Mm. So about four years ago, maybe five years ago, I received a call from one of my coaching clients and he said, you know, Mark, I've got one of my YPO forum mates mm -hmm. that I needs to meet you, who needs to meet you. And I think you would benefit from meeting him. And I think he needs your help. So can I introduce you to him? Mm -hmm. And I said, sure. Tell me who he is. Turns out he's the CEO of Bank Liumi, New York. Wow. Now, clearly not the same person who was Ooh. there when I was there. Right. Yep. And long story short, I was hired and I coached uh, this individual and his team for several years. Ooh. And, you know, <laughs> that I remember the day I got the signed agreement back for this piece of business. Mm. And I just was overwhelmed. Mm. I was overwhelmed with emotion. Like it's getting to me now yeah. even, in, in this moment, because to think about that journey, hmm. the, the lowest low almost in my life at that point was being laid off and how that flew in the face of who I believed I was at the time and all of those things. And the journey hmm. to bring it all the way back around to now I'm in the boardroom yeah. and I'm coaching the CEO and, and his leadership team. And so that was, that's the story. And, and the takeaway there, just to make it clear for the listeners, it's, it's not about me. It's about 
staying true to who you are mm. and continuing to move forward with your intentions. Mm. Because anything is possible. Like if you that's if that story isn't evidence that anything is possible, yep. anything is possible. It is. And you know, and, and it's a it's an amazing, amazing thing. It's uh, it's I've got a parallel story from my side where the person who and when I was laid off global strength and global effectiveness, the person who was involved in doing that and another person who actually gave me the message, literally in my career when I and I just demerged from a previous business partner around this principle that I wanted to practice what we preached. So that was to your point about values, what you believe in. I didn't believe we were practicing what we preached, and I wanted to, to live and breathe that, which is still on my journey. But it was about two to three years afterwards in a queue in Barclays, one of my clients, and here was this ex-boss who actually became a client and uh, came on the other side for me. And then one of the other people involved actually approached and came and was employed by me later on. Yeah. And it was yeah. it's exactly the same moment for me. It was that moment of going, yeah, stay true to my principles, lived and breathed, and I've created something where I feel like, firstly, I'm okay, and secondly, they're okay, and we can come back into that space. So I love it. It's the resonance to it, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, it is. So I, I do a lot of pro bono work with coaches mm -hmm. all around the world, and I really enjoy doing that because everybody's on the journey mm -hmm. somewhere along the way, you know, my, and my, my life's purpose is, is to liberate human potential, by the way, which came to me in that period after I launched my practice, because that's really why I was doing what I was doing. In fact, I mean, it's why I got the education I got. I just didn't know it at the time, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's been really clear to me as a driver of what I do. And it's, it's not liberating potential by necessarily putting somebody in the right job or giving somebody an opportunity. It's liberating potential by unlocking where we shackle ourselves in our minds. Yeah. And, and again, that's been the focus of my work and my coaching with my clients because it is the number one obstacle. And I don't feel like we talk about it enough or it's, it's not acceptable to talk about it enough. Or if we do talk about it, it gets sort of acknowledged like, well, yeah, 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 I know I've got, you know, whatever, but not realizing the magnitude of what's possible, you know, versus where somebody might be at any given moment in time. I, I relate two stories to, to that. One is you're talking about teaching and your mother and the curiosity. And I always love this. So Ken uh, Robinson piece on a TED talk. I don't know if you ever saw it where he, a teacher was seeing this child at the back drawing something and came up and said to the child, so what are you doing? She said, well, I'm drawing a picture of God. Teacher said, well, do you know that we don't know what God looks like? And said, well, actually, if you give me a few minutes, the child said, I will know. <laughs> and it was that art of the possible. And there's, there's That's right. something related to that from Jamie Smart, who wrote the book Clarity and, and was my first experience of a really powerful coach for myself. And he talked about the child having a self-correcting mind mm -hmm. and the ability to very quickly fall out of their own thinking. And the way he described it was the Colorado River cutting through rock. But as adults, we grow and we freeze our thinking and we get, as you say, habits, habits of thinking Sure. Uh, in there. So I'd love to come back to the habits piece because what he talked about is by the end, you've got this trickle and you've got to unfreeze that thinking. So talk to me about how you do that in your work, because that's a, a core piece that we've got to keep coming back to. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. If I really boil it down, there's two mechanisms that I use to help 
people that are stuck or not getting what they want out of themselves. Yeah. One is disruptive mm-hmm. and the other is more measured. Mm-hmm. So I write a lot about fear as a motivator in activators. And in fact, activator number one is reduce fear. Mm-hmm. And it's number one for a reason because it's number one. Mm. And, you know, the research is clear. Most of our decisions are fear-based, although you may not acknowledge it at the time. You know, it's about what are you trying to avoid more than what are you trying to get to and, and want. And it's insidious because for an entrepreneur or a leader, if fear of something, let's say, is preventing you from letting an employee go mm-hmm. who might be a good performer but is causing cultural damage inside the business you know by just being a jerk or what have you but you're afraid to let them go because of their high performance and contribution to the business right it prevents you from doing the right thing yep. and you know it's a case of what i call focusing on the 5% not the 95% so we're focused on the productive jerk mm-hmm. which is the 5% and ignoring the 95% of the rest of the company that has to put up with this bozo every day when they come to work right mm-hmm. and and these are good people and all of this and so we we focus disproportionately there so the way that i come about that is i created this fear reduction tool mm-hmm. and this is the the disruptive tool mm-hmm. because it forces you to be more intellectual about your fear, be more logical about the fear. And the first time I did it in a workshop, Colin, it was it scared me to death, yeah. but then became this indicator of effectiveness. So I'm, I'm in a workshop live and I have this group of executives using this fear reduction tool. And about four minutes into the exercise, one of them literally takes the tool, balls it up into a ball of paper <laughs> and throws it across the room. Huh. Now, if you're the guy who created the intellectual property and you're standing in front of the room giving your workshop, yep. what's the first thought that goes through your head when that happens? Imposter syndrome, I've created a rubbish tool yeah, that nobody wants. This is horrible, right? <laughs> and so, of course, I asked, I said, what's going on? Hmm. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Mark, I didn't have to get through the whole thing to realize how ridiculous it is that I'm holding on to this fear in the face of all of this reasoning that gives me all the proof I need to let go of this fear. Hmm. And of course, at that point, the clouds parted, the angels started singing, (laughs) um, you know, cue the choir, all all of that. And I tell the story now when I do the workshop, Hmm. because what I find is it helps people realize the folly, you know, of the fear and just the power of pulling people into logic from emotion, which is the mechanism by which we reduce fear. Interestingly, as an aside, activator number two is to increase inspiration and you do the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. You want to pull logic into emotion, right? To increase inspiration. They're like two opposing dials on a dashboard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's the disruptive method to change a habit if there's fear involved. And in many cases, there is some fear that's ingrained into why we do the habit in the first place. The other is more a more structured approach. I have a change your habit tool. (laughs) And you've got to acknowledge that you would not be engaged in a habit of thinking Mm -hmm. or a habit of behaving if there wasn't some reward that was associated with the habit. Yep. Okay. And so what the tool does is it helps you get explicit 
about what the reward is for the current habit. And, and listen, some of the rewards for our non-productive habits are, are pretty crazy, yeah. you know, like pretty crazy stuff because the reward is like to lessen the punishment, mm. not actually a real reward. So you have to be really honest with yourself about that. But the idea is if you get clear with the rewards, you can then design a replacement habit mm. that has a reward structure to it that is better than the reward structure for the existing habit that you want to change. And I don't use the term good habit or bad habit. I use the term productive habit or non-productive habit because I feel like it's more accurate. Mm -hmm. It's not judgmental. It's more about being in forward motion. Hmm. Yeah. I I love the productive and non-productive because it relates for me about the saboteurs in our heads. For example, hypervigilant. And hypervigilant is in in a good way, almost a pre-mortem, post-mortem, we're looking for what's going to go well, badly, we're well prepared and other things, but overdone. Yeah, becomes non-productive where we fear everything. Going back to your fear piece, yeah, or or paralyzing. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, I love those two. So, disruptive and more measured approach, and and I hear that there's these tensions that you're working. So that, that's what I love about your work and the activators is you're always working in tension because leadership is not about having a defined answer. It's about tensions in your life. It's- yeah, and what I set out to do is create a series of tools with the research and the science behind them, mm-hmm. but that you don't need to understand the research and science to benefit from the application of the tool, yeah. right? Because again, the people I deal with, entrepreneurs, CEOs running high growth, small mid-market companies, they don't always have the time to get into all of that, all of that other stuff. But if you just say, here, use this and let's talk about this thing and you can walk them through it and the science is behind it to make it work in, in all likelihood or in most cases, it's really effective. Mm. The one I loved, which I have been experimenting with, is the percentage of questioning versus ah. speaking, which has been tough. Do you want to just tell the listeners about it? Because I, I found it, and I told my team I was trying to do it, so I was getting them to measure whether I was actually effective in it or not. But wow, I found it tough. Yeah. yeah. So one of the productive leadership behaviors that I unpack in the book is what I call your question-to-statement ratio. And what I have found is most leaders I run into have a question to statement ratio that is the exact opposite of what it should be. Hmm. And this would be a ratio of about 10 statements to every one question. So a question to statement ratio of one over 10. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, it's not that big of a stretch of the imagination to, to see this because I'm a leader. My job is to tell people what to do. And people ask me questions. I give them answers. So I'm, I'm, spend a lot of my time telling people what to do. Mm. And, you know, if you're looking to build a business with one brain and a thousand arms and legs, that's a great ratio for you. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's exactly what's going to happen over time is you're going to remain the expert Mm. and everyone around you is going to become, is going to remain dependent on you for marching orders, for their instructions. Mm. And so rather what we want to do is flip the ratio on its head. Mm. And get into a mode where we're asking more questions than we're making statements. And that is the question statement ratio and this idea of trying to track it over time, be more aware of it. Because in a lot of cases, it's a habit. We, we provide an answer, right? Mm-hmm. The most powerful thing you can learn to do as a leader, and, which, and by the way, if there are people listening to this podcast who sell for a living, 
Mm-hmm. The most powerful thing, bar none, that you can do as a seller is get into the habit of answering a question with a question mm-hmm. every single time, forever. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the reason you want to answer a question with a question always is because it will give you better information that you can then use to answer the original question. Nice. It's not an avoidance measure because that's disingenuous. Mm. It's not meant to dodge. You don't ask a question to dodge, but it will always give you better information. Mm. It was Margaret Thatcher who once uh, journalist said, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Mrs. Thatcher, is it true that you always ask a question, uh, answer a question with a question? And she paused and went, who told you that? Yeah, but it's a tricky one to do because, as you, you're hinting there, the programming is to give a statement, to show knowledge, rather than actually to dig deeper on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm a big fan of David Marquet. Love him. Uh, have you read his book, Turn the Ship Around? It was oh, his first book. Yeah. And in the book, he's got this amazing tool called The Ladder of Leadership, mm-hmm. which I share widely and often. And I talk about it all the time. And it is the tool that you can use to get at this question to statement ratio, because the way the latter works is wherever somebody is, when they come to you with a question, it empowers you to ask a question back to them at the next level of thinking. Mm -hmm. So for example, the base rung on the ladder is tell me what to do. All right. And a lot of leaders and their staff operate this way right now. Some version of tell me what to do. Hey, Colin, I just got this call from our client and they told me that these three things are happening in the business. And I just I don't know what to tell them Hmm. right now. I didn't just say, hey, Colin, tell me what to do. But I pretty much just said, hey, Colin, tell me what to do. And the response for that is to not tell them what to do, Hmm. but rather ask the question at the next level of the ladder, which is. What do you think you should do? Hmm. Because I think is the next level of thinking from what should I do? Yeah. I think we should do this. And if somebody says, comes to you and says, Colin, I've been puzzling over this thing and I think we should do this. The response is, well, what do you recommend? Hmm. Yeah. Because a recommendation is a step of more sophisticated than thinking hmm. and so on up the ladder. And it's an incredibly powerful tool that will help you in this journey to try to get that question to statement ratio right. But at the same time, what you're doing is you're forcing your people to learn how to think more independently. Mm-hmm. I talk about this in my engagement class that I, that I teach because it is an absolute critical lever to create more autonomy, more mastery on the team, which are, which are two of the three research-based underpinnings to high engagement. Yep. Love that in terms of that. And I, I, I think it's also, it's related to two things. One is your measure more piece. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you're measuring and you're, you're growing and that measurement allows you to move forward in terms of firstly, what's the percentage of questions to statements, but secondly, how are the people growing, which is a, the key thing. And I wanted to talk on the change side because if there's one of these things in your book that just really resonated to me was change your neighborhood because mm. a lot of these, you know, we can change your questions to statement ratio. We can do a lot of things, but there is a piece that if we're hanging around in the wrong neighborhoods, yeah, there's very high 
probability that we won't change. Yeah. So I'd love to, to, to get the listeners to hear that. Maybe just to close out with that would be a lovely piece. Yeah. Fantastic. I had the good fortune to grow up with four grandparents on both sides, which is fabulous. And my mom's father, uh, my grandpa Ben, had some advice for me when I had made the decision to buy my first home. And of course, at that point in my life, I was all ears because that was new, new territory for me as a, um, I don't know, I was in my mid-20s, maybe, in the market for a home. And he said, Mark, here's the thing. Whatever you do, don't ever buy the most expensive house in a neighborhood because over time, there's only one way that the other houses in the neighborhood will affect the property value of the house you buy if it's the most expensive house. And that is to, to, to influence it downward over time. And I thought about it. It made great sense to me. I thanked him, right? And of course, I've taken that advice in my real estate transactions ever since, right? Mm -hmm. But if you fast forward to about six years into my coaching career, Mm -hmm. I was in a network of practitioners at the time that had really been beneficial and served me to kind of ramp up my practice. But about six years into it, it hit me like a ton of bricks one day. Grandpa Ben wasn't giving me real estate advice (laughs) because I had become among the most expensive houses in my professional neighborhood. Interesting. And that's the thing that we need to watch out for. And that caused me to make a change, by the way. And it was a big change. I mean, literally pulled the plug on my affiliation with this network and connected with a brand new network. And at the time, I was all of a sudden hanging around with people who intimidated me because in my view at the time, they were like 10 times more successful than I was as practitioners. And so you have to be a little scared, yeah. you know? But are you hanging around with people where you're contributing more value to them Mm. than you're receiving in return? And this is hard calculus to do, Mm. really hard, because we're emotionally entangled often with, with these relationships. Or are you hanging around with people who more often than not actually make you a little uncomfortable? Like, boy, I hope Colin doesn't ask me how this relationship is going. Yeah. Because I don't want to have to admit to him the truth, because he's going to give me a hard time about it. Mm. Fascinating. And you know what? It's a, it's a really nice place to come because I, I agree with you. And one of the reasons I enjoy meeting you and enjoy our conversations and enjoy the person who introduced us, which is Brian Wish and his network of people, is the more that you change your neighborhood, change the voices, change the level, then you grow. But it brings us back to it's about reducing fear. So it is a bit fearful. And so there's, there's all these tensions going on in, in leadership and as we grow. If you had one thing to leave the listeners with that's maybe on your mind that you are working on at the moment, something that's changing in your thinking, what would it be? That's, I know it's a tough question. So that's one of the questions I'm going to ask you. It, it is a tough question. It's doing, doing, mm-hmm. not thinking or being. Mm-hmm. It's what you do that makes all the difference in everything. And it's what you do that causes people to have beliefs about you and who you are. Mm. It's not what you say. It's not what you think. And I'm not implying that those things aren't connected because we know they are for sure. Yeah. But it's, it's about what you do and, and how you actually show up for people. Mm. As a leader, are you walking your own talk? Are you showing up 
the way you expect others to show up. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that a little bit less thinking and talking, a little bit more focus on doing and being what you want to see in others yeah. can go a really long way. Oh, well, well, you represent that in a lot in terms of what I've experienced of you so far. So this is this is great. Mark, I could carry on talking for ages and ages. And maybe we get you back on and we uh, get another episode um, to talk. About. I would enjoy that, Colin. If people want to find out more about you, the, the classes, because you're involved with a number of different areas, where could they experience you and uh, get in contact? Yeah. So the easiest place is to go to my website, which is uh, wwwmark greencom And it's M-A-R-K and then green, G-R-E-E-N, just like the color. Mm-hmm. You can also find me on LinkedIn at Coach Mark Green. Yep. I publish a newsletter every three weeks on LinkedIn that goes out to almost 140,000 people worldwide. And I love that. So you might subscribe there um, as well. And you can kind of learn from those sources where, where I am. And I've got a couple of books on Amazon activators, of course, as we talked about also creating a culture of accountability. And there's more of my thinking in there. Brilliant. Well, I look forward to one day seeing the sunsets we were talking about at the beginning there. Um, enjoy. Enjoy your next trip as well. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in hopefully another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast very soon. I would love that, Colin. I appreciate it. It's been wonderful being with you and, and getting to know you as well. I look forward to a, to a future together. Thank you, Mark. Cheers. That was Mark Green, one of those conversations, one of those people that you could talk to for a long while. He lives in a, on a lake with beautiful views, beautiful sunsets. And just even having that conversation, I can imagine myself sat in the rocking chair next to him and uh, having these different types of conversations, exploring different ideas with him. What I loved about him is that he's research-based, science-based, behavioral science but he brings it back down to crystallize thoughts that can be used. And I've practiced a number of these things since reading his book in my own leadership. And it's had great results and they're tough. Some of these are tough to do and all the best stuff is tough to, to work through. But you'll have got today some of the ideas and, you know, changing your neighborhood has been a an area that I've looked at to stretch myself and find a, a different place to play. And uh, that really resonated to me. So I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I look forward to welcoming you back in another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast very soon. Mm-hmm.